This episode of the Art of Manliness podcast is brought to you by Wrangler Jeans. Whether you ride a bike, a bronc, or a skateboard, or you do all three, Wrangler Jeans are for you. Classic or modern styles, a range of fits, all price points, vintage re-releases. Wrangler has something for everyone. Visit Wrangler.com and check out their selection of jeans, shirts, and outwear for men and women. New styles, great fits. Wrangler, real, comfortable jeans. Brett McKay here, and welcome to another edition of the Art of Manliness podcast. Now, you've probably heard that Edwin Starr song, War, What Is It Good For? Edwin said, absolutely nothing. My guest today makes the provocative argument that war is in fact good for a lot of things. His name is Benjamin Ginsburg. He's a professor of political science at John Hopkins University, and in his book, The Worth of War, he argues that while war certainly is terrible in the death and destruction it wreaks, it also gives rise to many of the political structures, technologies, and conveniences that society benefits from. We begin our conversation discussing how war is what gave rise to many things we take for granted in the modern world, including nation states, engineering, leadership strategies, and large-scale organizing. We also discuss many the life-saving medical advances that have been made thanks to war, including sanitation, vaccinations, trauma surgery, and prosthetics. Professor Ginsburg then makes the case that war is the ultimate test of rationality as it unsparingly eliminates bad ideas and bad thinking, and he gives some examples of that. We then discuss how war has counterintuitively advanced civil liberties, like voting, during the 19th and 20th century. This is a thought-provoking conversation that's going to give you plenty of grist to consider and discuss with your friends. After it's over, make sure to check out our show notes at AOA worth of war. All right, Benjamin Ginsburg, welcome to the show. Delighted to be with you. So there's that song that we've probably all heard, War, What Is It Good For? Absolutely Nothing. But you got a book out called The Worth of War, arguing, no, actually, war is good for some things. What got you thinking about the benefits of war to a society? Because that's a pretty provocative thing to think about. Yeah, well, actually, it was it was that bumper sticker, you know, war is not the answer. And I thought, well, you know, it probably depends on the question. And war is actually the answer to the great questions of politics. Statehood, for example, which states will exist? The states that exist today are the uh, results of a thousand-year-long culling-out process, which was primarily based on the ability to wage war. Those states that weren't able to wage war successfully or weren't willing to engage in warfare, they no no longer exist. So this idea that we should uh, always give peace a chance, that war isn't worth anything, well, if we succumbed to that illusion, there's little doubt whatsoever that the United States of America would, uh, you know, in a relatively short order, cease to exist. War is also the answer to the question of who will occupy what territory. You know, there isn't a single square inch of territory on the face of the earth that didn't used to belong to somebody else. North America once belonged to sets of Native American tribes. It's occupied by Uh, the descendants of the white settlers and other immigrants uh, as a result of war. The Native Americans were defeated and driven out. A large part of the United States we took by war from, from Spanish settlers who had previously taken it by force 
from Native American groups like the Incas and the Aztecs and what have you, look at the history of any square inch of territory on the face of the earth, and what you will see is the result of, a, of, a, of centuries of warfare. And I'm going to assume that 500 years from now, or even less, some of the states that currently exist uh, and some of the territory they currently hold will have gone elsewhere. And war also decides who uh, is going to wield power within a territory. You know, if you take the history of the United States, that question, the, the large question, was settled by wars, the Revolutionary War, the Civil War. Only in the aftermath of those wars did the uh, survivors discuss, you know, minutiae of, uh, of territorial settlement. So in my view, war is, is the answer. That bumper sticker is wrong. War is the answer to the most important, the largest questions of political life. Now, we don't like that. You know, we, we Americans in particular like to think that everything can be discussed, that all problems can be resolved through um, peaceful and cheerful discussion. But unfortunately, that's not true. You know, in the course of doing my research, I really only found one group, one group that was absolutely true to pacifist principles. One group, and these were the Moriori of the Chatham Islands. The Moriori were, by religion and by uh, custom, totally pacifistic. Well, their little island was invaded by the Taranaki Maori. And uh, the Maori, the Moriori refused to fight, and the Maori unfortunately killed and ate them. So that, to me, is the uh, is one of the lessons, one of the unfortunate lessons of the real world, as the Germans like to say, "Realpolitik," the world as it is, not as we would like it to be, and in the world as it is. Those who are unwilling or unable to fight get killed and eaten. Well, and besides answering questions of statehood and territories, you also argue that a lot of other advancements in civilization, art, technology, philosophy, happen during times of war. Because we, we often think this idea that I mean, intuitively makes sense. If we're in a time of peace, that's when all this uh, innovation is going to happen. But you say, no, actually, if you look back at human history, when a lot of the innovations happened in human ha history, that civilization was embroiled in warfare. Any examples of that? Well, you know, going back to ancient times, engineering, the, the term engineering referred to the construction of military machinery. The Greeks, the ancient Greeks, were the masters of engineering. They invented many of the uh, engineering principles that are, that are still with us today, the winch, the pulley, the hoist, the crane. And these were invented to power engines of war. The Romans cheerfully borrowed all of these things, improved on them, and conquered a big chunk of the world. The Romans were especially impressed during the famous siege of Syracuse. Syracuse had among its citizens famous Greek mathematician and inventor, a fellow named Archimedes. And Archimedes built a variety of devices that were used to keep the Romans at bay. The famous claw of Archimedes, which was a device 
that on a, a series of levers and pulleys could reach down from the cliff into the harbor below and pull Roman warships out of the harbor, drop them, and dash them against the rocks. Now, the Romans were incredibly impressed by this, and Roman soldiers were ordered to capture this fellow and not to harm him because the Romans wanted to put him to work. Well, unfortunately, one soldier did kill Archimedes, but nevertheless, the Romans made use of these principles for their own weapons. And moreover, the winch, the pulley, the hoist, the crane, the screw, these became important factors in the civilian economies of all early states and continue to be important today. You know, ships, all of the mechanisms that we use for farming, machines of all sorts depend upon these Greek military inventions. Other other modern-day principles that owe their origins to warfare uh, would include the idea of bureaucracy. Now, we may not like bureaucracy particularly, I don't, but it's necessary to keep the world moving. And bureaucracy was initially developed as a mechanism for keeping armies together. Bureaucracy derives from military personnel management, from military training, logistics. The first bureaucracies were charged with organizing military forces. And in fact, the Romans, one of their great innovations was the bureaucratization of military leadership. In the ancient world, an army was led by an individual, a prince, a king, an Alexander the Great, who rode out at the head of his forces. Well, if that individual was killed, sometimes the army would collapse. Well, the Romans bureaucratized military leadership. They divided their legions into a variety of different uh, portions, and each portion was led by an officer. And those officers collectively provided the leadership of a legion. So instead of one single general upon whose fate the whole war depended, the Romans bureaucratized military efforts to, to great advantage. And of course, bureaucracy is the mechanism we use uh, to run all civilian and military and civil government operations today. Bureaucracy is a nuisance, but it is the most efficient form of organization. Or to take the obvious example, technology. Many, if not most, of the technologies upon upon, uh, which we depend today were developed for military uses. Sonar, radar, the internet, microwave, nuclear power, robotics, microelectronics. All of these were developed because states saw military advantages to be derived that way and invested large sums of of money into what previously had had been just theories. Usually war doesn't produce theories, but it does produce applications, technologies. And though initially these are used for warfare, sooner or later these become drivers of the civilian economy. I mean, uh, the other day I flew on a jet aircraft. Well, jets, as everyone knows, were developed first by the Germans and then copied by the Americans and the Russians and others to use in military aircraft. So, you know, the idea that that war doesn't lead anywhere, uh, you know, is just false. War is terrible, 
But we have to look it squarely in the eye and ask what is there to be learned from it. I, I would also add that the, the most important lesson of war is rationality. You know, it's very conventional to see war as irrational. Why would people do such a terrible thing to one another? But the great principle of warfare is irrationality, is rationality. Let me refer listeners to the great Greek historian Thucydides, who wrote the history of the Peloponnesian Wars. Now, Thucydides, in one of his um, portions, sometimes called the Melian Dialogue, discusses what happened when the Athenian army landed on the island of Milos, little island in the Aegean. The uh, Melians didn't want the Athenian invaders, and the Athenians said, look, we're not here to bother you. We're not interested in your island. We are just interested in constructing a naval base, and we're not going to, to bother you in any way. Well, the Melians said, uh, no, you've got to get out of here. We'll fight. The Athenians said, look, our army is 10 times as large as yours. What's the point of uh, fighting when we're not going to hurt you anyway? Well, the Melians said, your army may be larger, but our cause is just, and we know the gods will support us. The Athenians said, well, you know, we are second to none in our reverence for the gods. There's no question. However, it's been our observation that the gods tend to favor the larger army. Well, the Melians wouldn't listen, attack the Athenian forces, and were routed. And Thucydides draws a lesson from this story. Thucydides says war is a stern teacher. And what it teaches is to think rationally. If you can't think rationally, chances are you're going to be defeated and possibly destroyed. And Thucydides says this lesson learned in war often is internalized by warring cultures. They learn to think rationally. You know, and if we if we move forward in time a little bit, we can find many such examples. You know, the Lakota Sioux, people, Americans are familiar with this, the Lakota in the 19th century became convinced that a series of religious rituals would protect them from the bullets of cavalrymen. So they danced something called the ghost dance and then wore ghost shirts, which were, if properly sanctified, were alleged to turn aside bullets. Well, it didn't quite work out. It didn't turn aside bullets. The result was the destruction of the Lakota at the hands of the U.S. cavalry. Again, uh, they didn't think rationally, and as a result, were destroyed. Or consider World War II. You know, why didn't the Germans win? The Germans were on the verge of victory. You know, German tanks were at the gates of Moscow, and the Russians seemed utterly unable to defend themselves for a time. Well, something happened. First, Stalin, who was just as crazy as Hitler, retreated into his dasha, didn't speak to anyone, and when he came out after a couple of weeks, he was a changed man and called for Marshal Zhukov and turned the army over to Zhukov. Stalin had decided to think straight. Hitler, on the other hand, was never able to overcome the lenses of the blinders of Nazi ideology. 
here he had an army which needed food and provisions to be obtained in the Ukraine. At the same time, because of Nazi ideology, he had forces brutalizing the Ukrainian peasants upon whom the army would depend for food and provisions. It made no sense and contributed to, to the logistical downfall of the uh, Wehrmacht, or one might say, chasing out of Germany all the physicists who then developed, all the Jewish physicists who then built the atom bomb for the Americans also made no sense. So here, you know, Thucydides would have understood. Thucydides said war is a stern teacher. Stalin was willing to learn the lesson. Hitler was not, and Hitler was defeated. That is the ultimate lesson of warfare. You, it, war teaches you to think straight or else. If you can't think straight, you're, you're not likely to be around later to talk about it. Right, because it's the ultimate competition, right? We are, we're all Ultimate the- competition. Right. Oh, and going back to you know some of the benefits, the technological advances that come from warfare, I think a lot of people don't realize this, but a lot of like medical advancements come from warfare. So like, you know, saving life comes from the lessons we learned in war. Yeah, that that's ironic. You know, many medical advances, including the use of antibiotics, came about because of military needs. Also many surgical techniques that were used for many years thereafter were learned or at least honed in military surgical hospitals in front line, you know, just behind the front lines. Absolutely true. The use of blood for transfusions, blood, various blood products, all of these came because of military necessity and then became major factors in uh, saving lives among civilians. It's, a, it's, an, it's ironic, you know, at the cost of life. We learn how to save life. Yeah, well, I think also sanitation. Sanitation, absolutely. Was another big one. And I think in the recent wars we've been experiencing in the United States and the Middle East, like prosthetics have advanced considerably because of all the IEDs, which, I mean, I'm not saying this is like, oh, so great, you know, people lost limbs, but it's terrible. But like as a result of that, other people benefit from the advancements in prosthetics. Uh, absolutely. Have- this, is, this is the what I keep coming back to. War is terrible. War is horrible. Everyone who has ever been in a, in a war knows that. On the other hand, it, war is something that we humans engage in all the time, and we need to uh, look at it carefully to understand it and to see how our society is shaped by warfare. And uh, you know, the truth is that war has secondary effects that produce often great nations, great cultures, and enormous scientific advances. You know, it's no accident that, you know, the great imperial powers that that waged war all the time uh, also became centers of science, centers of, of engineering, and even centers of culture. You know, look at the United States. No country has waged war more frequently than the United States of America. We like to think of ourselves as very peaceful, but we go to war a lot. By some counts, we've gone to war more than almost anyone else in in recent history. And at the same time, we've become a great center of science and engineering, culture people might argue, but certainly science and engineering. And a lot of that science and engineering derives from our military efforts. I mean, right now, advances in robotics and microelectronics 
are coming about because of inventions, the, the drone, for example, invented for military uses. And also artificial intelligence is the next, from what I what Absolutely, read. artificial intelligence. And, you know, what, what will be next, I don't know, but there's, there's sort of no limit to this kind of forced incubation. In the absence of war, what often happens is that, you know, societies become complacent, things are good enough, and the people who, um, you know, who are selling and, you know, producing products of some particular sort are, you know, happy enough with them. But war stresses everything. Things that seem to be okay in the in a peacetime world turn out not to be so good in the competition of warfare. You know, aircraft construction. Well, propeller aircraft were pretty good. No, no, nobody needed to replace them. Uh, jets are better. And the transition from pr- propeller to jet came about because of intensive military competition because of World War II. So war is terrible. War is awful, but war also has a number of consequences. You know, the, the modern world, for better or worse, is the product of warfare, and the things that we take for granted uh, are often results of warfare. Well, and you mentioned, and we move away from sort of like, you know, technology, very visceral technology, but like you also mentioned, you know, bureaucracy is a type of technology, but you all, that warfare developed, but you also argue in the book, you know, our conceptions of leadership, organization that we have in the civilian world, whether you're in a university or a business, like warfare helped refine those ideas of what we're using today. Absolutely. And also, you know, our, our contemporary science of planning you know, today we plan before we act, and planning has become quite an important profession, both in in civilian and uh, military applications. No corporation would do much of anything without planning, and planning derives from military necessity. You know, the great writers on warfare, Clausewitz, Cotillia, Sun Tzu, these individuals in their writings emphasize the importance of planning. You know, both Kotilya and Sun Tzu. Kotilya was an Indian strategist of the ancient world, Sun Tzu, a Chinese strategist. Both say that the commander who enters into a war without a plan is a fool and is going to be defeated. The commander who enters a war with a, with a very well-conceived plan, which takes into account the capabilities of the, of the enemy, his own capabilities that individual is likely to be victorious. Now, it seems obvious, but absent warfare, planning was not something in which people habitually engaged. Planning was important because it became important because it kept your civilization alive in warfare. You had to plan what you were going to do. You know, again, if if we lived in a world where other people, where no one was violent, it would be wonderful. Okay, we, we would probably be happier and more secure. But we don't live in such a world. We live in a world where some people are violent, and we have to be prepared to be responsive. And as a result, you know, we learn certain things that, are, that should not be ignored 
because they evolved for, for military uh, applications. We're going to take a quick break for your word from our sponsors. Jeremy here, producer for the AOM podcast. Support for today's show comes in part from Starbucks Double Shot, a chilled coffee energy drink that gives you the energy to go from point A to point done. As a husband, dad to two young kids, and podcast producer, I have a lot of hats to wear, and I need a lot of energy to be fully present in all those roles from before the sun is up to long after it sets. And even though summer is winding down, it's still hot outside when I want that afternoon pick-me-up. The last thing I need is a steaming beverage. That's where the Starbucks double shot comes in. Starts with bold Starbucks coffee and is blended with milk for a smooth, creamy, delicious flavor. It's then enhanced with ginseng, guarana, and B vitamins to give you that little extra oomph. Starbucks double shot comes in six delicious flavors, mocha, vanilla, hazelnut, white chocolate, Mexican mocha, and coffee. That last one being my own personal favorite. Starbucks double shot. It's energy to do things you actually do. Find it in your local convenience store. Well, thank you, Jeremy. And this episode is also brought to you in part by RX Bar. RX Bar believes in the power of transparency and lets the core ingredients do all the talking. That's why they list their ingredients right on the front of the packaging. They're the ones who use egg whites for protein, dates to bind, nuts for texture, and other delicious ingredients like unsweetened chocolate, real fruit, and spices like sea salt or cinnamon. RX Bar comes in 14 delicious flavors like mango pineapple, chocolate chip, peanut butter, that's my favorite right there, and other seasonal flavors. RX Bars are gluten-free, soy-free, and free of artificial flavors and preservatives. They're great for hike on the go, a pre-workout snack, or a three 3 p.m. pick me up at the office. And here's some good news. RX Bar just debuted a new RX Nut Butter. Each single serve packet contains delicious creamy nut butter with nine grams of high quality protein and comes in three flavors, honey, cinnamon, peanut butter. That's really good. Peanut butter and vanilla almond butter. It's squeezable and spreadable and pairs great with fruit, rice cakes, pretzels, or straight out of the pouch right into your mouth. Nut butter, like I said, honey, cinnamon, peanut butter. Fantastic. You need to try that. If you want to get 25% off your first order, visit rxbar.com manliness and enter promo code manliness at checkout. Again, 25% off your first order order by visiting rxbar.com slash manliness and entering promo code manliness at checkout. And now back to the show. Well, the, one of the other counterintuitive arguments you make is that, you know, war is something that is, in, is enacted by states, right? But you argue that warfare throughout time has actually reduced state brutality. So how is it that the, like this most brutal of thing, warfare, actually reduces state brutality. Yeah, that I mean that that to me is a very interesting phenomenon. When a state engages in war, it has to think about the loyalty of its citizens. It's asking people to fight. And with the advent of mass armies in the 18th century, governments had to reach out to ordinary folks and persuade them to be loyal, to be willing to fight. You know, when armies were small, when they consisted of a small number of mercenary forces or or others, this wasn't an issue. However, with the advent of mass armies, which in, in modern times came about during the French Revolution, governments had to think seriously about popular support. You know, after the French Revolution, France was prostrate. Its economy was shattered. The army, which had been the largest in Europe, was scattered, had no officers. And the other armies, the other states of Europe, saw an opportunity to pick off pieces of French territory. So a series of coalitions led by the British attacked France from all sides. And at first, the French couldn't defend themselves. But then the the government hit upon something novel. It called upon the citizens of France to come forward to defend the fatherland. 
Now, most of the people living in France didn't know they were citizens. They were, you know, subjects of the king or or subjects of some local nobleman. But this idea of citizenship, the idea that they had a stake in the nation, this had a powerful effect. And it, it brought about, through a mix of volunteerism and conscription, the, the so-called levée en masse, the construction of a huge army of hundreds of thousands of poorly trained soldiers, poorly trained, underarmed, but enthusiastic. These soldiers were received political indoctrination. They were, they were told that they were citizens, that they were members of this society, and they, they had something to fight for. So when this army appeared on the field, the Austrians and the Prussians and the British sort of laughed at it because they saw lightly armed rabble. But these soldiers were actually willing to die for their country, and they overwhelmed the opposition. And all the other governments of Europe saw that they either had to follow the French example or they would simply disappear from the face of the earth. They'd be overwhelmed by the French. So the, the other European regimes set about turning their own subjects into citizens. One way they did that was through the creation of schools, where among, in addition to the three R's, they were taught citizen, they taught their kids citizenship. Later on, systems of public welfare evolved, first in the form of benefits for veterans and then social benefits for everyone. And subsequently, voting rights were seen as a mechanism for more thoroughly linking ordinary folks to the state. Now, you know, we've all heard the slogan, one man, or today they say one person, one vote. But the origins of this slogan are a little bit different. The slogan originated in Sweden, and the full slogan was one man, one vote, one gun. The idea being that the right to vote would tie citizens to the government and make them willing to fight. You know, during World War I, Britain and Canada gave women the right to vote, but it was very limited. Women were, who had relatives in the military services were given the right to vote for the duration of the war. Well, they never took it back, but the idea was, again, this notion that giving people here, giving women the right to vote would it would help persuade them to encourage their loved ones to fight. So, so a lot of uh, aspects of our society that in which governments treat citizens well, voting rights, public welfare programs, today health benefits, etc., all of these derive from military necessity. When governments needed people to fight, they found that citizens were more effective than, you know, reluctant or unwilling mercenaries. Now, you know, that should lead us to think about um, the contemporary period when ours and other governments are shifting, shifting away from citizen soldiers back to much smaller professional armies, nowadays wielding weapons such as drones and increasingly robotic weapons of various sorts that don't, quite, that don't require ordinary folks to be involved. You may remember this, but I, I recall that right after the 9-11 terror attacks, President Bush addressed the nation 
And everyone was expecting a sort of Churchillian speech, you know, blood, sweat, toil, and tears. But you remember what President Bush said? He said, don't worry about anything. We have it all under control. Everybody should go shopping. I asked my wife, you know, do you think it would be okay to go to Macy's or do we have to go to Neiman's? Well, the, the, what I saw here was that in, the modern, in modern times, the military didn't really need citizen participation anymore. And I wonder how this will play out over the next century or, century or so. If you don't need citizens to fight, you're under no obligation to treat them as well as they were treated during, during the period of mass armies. That's something to watch. Yeah, I'm curious too. Do you think, in sort of your research of this, does does like living in a peaceful time do something to the psyche, or I mean, you can call it soul of the site? Is like make it flaccid? Does it make it complacent? Like, do people kind of get, I don't know, yeah, morally lazy? I guess is the the word I'm looking for. Well, you know, when people become accustomed to whatever it is that they experience. And when we live in a in a peaceful time, it's people st- stop stop uh, remembering that the peace we experience is the result of war. Had the United States um, and Russia and Britain not defeated Germany, the world would be very very different. You know, in some respects, the world that we live in is still a world that resulted from that great military victory. But we forget, you know, we think that peace is self-perpetuating and that we should uh, at all costs avoid war. Now, war is to be avoided when possible, but we have to recognize that war eventually overtakes us. Eventually, we have to be prepared to fight. Now, you know, the United States has compartmentalized fighting. We have a military that is divorced from civilian society. We don't have an army of citizen soldiers anymore. We have a professional army. President Nixon worked to create a professional army because he thought professional soldiers could more easily be used. Remember, um, during the Vietnam War, the New York Times would always run these multi-page spreads, faces of the fallen, and we would all pour through these pictures recognizing people we knew. And this was a very, you know, this was designed to increase popular opposition to the war. Well, during the uh, Gulf Wars, the New York Times did the same thing, but most people I know didn't find anyone they knew in these pages, and as a political ploy, you know, it just didn't have the, the same impact. Well, looking beyond the politics of it, what what uh, this said to me is that you know we've compartmentalized war. War is being undertaken by professional soldiers and military hardware, so the rest of us can live as though war doesn't exist. To most Americans, war is something that they read about or turn the page if they don't want to read about. So Americans live in a, uh, I would say, an artificial reality in which the world, their world is peaceful and there is conflict somewhere else. Well, I hate to say this, but sooner or later, this illusion uh, is likely to be shattered. And at that point, we have to 
re- refresh our memory of Thucydides. Thucydides says war is a stern teacher, and if decades of peace haven't, you know, had the effect of, you know, allowing us to forget the lesson, uh, we better la- learn it damn quickly, or we will join the millions and others who bore in the the, um, you know, Moriori who refuse to learn that lesson. War is always with us. And, um, you know, the idea that we should always give peace a chance, well, it's a nice idea. It's a very, very pleasant idea. But that's not what the world that we live in is about. We don't live in a peaceful world. We We can't allow that illusion of peace to make us forget that the peace we live in was produced by war, can only be protected by war, and sooner or later is going to be shattered by war, whether we like it or not. So I'm curious, you know, is it all these benefits of war? I mean, I guess you're 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 not advocating that we become jingoist and like you know start no, wars. Not. So it's just, but it's just like be ready for it and also be just, ready. It's going to happen. You know, there there are, there are several kinds of theories about how you can get rid of war, and there there are um, two uh, main philosophers whose in whose ideas have influenced thinking about how to bring about peace. And those would be Immanuel Kant and Thomas Hobbes, both 19th century political theorists, or one 18th century, the other a 19th century political theorist. And they believed that, that war could be expunged from the face of the earth. Kant produced what is sometimes known as his theory of perpetual peace. Kant observed that democracies didn't seem to go to war, at least not against one another. So his uh, his observation led him to assert that if the whole world consisted of democracies, there would be no more war. You remember during the uh, Bush administration, people made this argument, and this was one of the arguments in favor of going to war in the Middle East. If we turned all of the Middle Eastern nations into democracy, we would bring about peace in that region. You know, this seems like a nice idea, but turning the world into democracies, especially if they don't want to be democracies, would seem to require an awful lot of war, as we discovered in the Middle East. Moreover, it's not clear that that Kant was uh, was right. The United States of America, which is still the world's premier democracy, is also a very warlike country. So I'm not sure that the Kantians um, have it right. And then there was Hobbes. Hobbes, in his book, The Leviathan, argued that war was a product of the absence of sovereignty. He observed that within a country where, where there was a sovereign power, there was no war. Very, very seldom would there be war. Whereas in a world of sovereign powers, they warred against each other all the time. So Hobbes' idea was the Leviathan, a state that encompassed all the nations of the earth and would thereby banish war because there wouldn't be a bunch of competing nations. Well, this idea also has its problems. One is that uh, it would require centuries of warfare to achieve the existence of one sovereign. And then that sovereign, in order to prevent war, to prevent violence within its territory, would probably have to be quite despotic. You know, I hear that North Korea is a very peaceful place, but it keeps several million people incarcerated 
and brutalizes them. So it's not clear that this is a good trade-off. In fact, people, most people prefer violence to totalitarianism. So the, the two main philosophical principles that people bandy about for ending war both have their serious limitations. I say that, you know, the best we can do is be prepared. The best we can do is understand that war is a fact of life on this planet, and that so long as it is, we need to be prepared for it and be prepared to the extent possible to gain whatever benefits come about because of it. Well, Ben, is there some place people can go to learn more about the book? Uh, Amazon.com, the source of all knowledge. <laughs> source of all knowledge, right. Well, Benjamin Ginsburg, this has been a great conversation. Thanks for coming on. Oh, delighted to do it. My guest today was Benjamin Ginsburg. He's the author of the book, The Worth of War. It's available on Amazon.com and bookstores everywhere. Also check out our show notes at aom.is slash worth of war, where you find links to resources where you can delve deeper into this topic. Well, that wraps up another edition of the Art of Manliness podcast. For more manly tips and advice, make sure to check out the Art of Manliness website at artofmanliness.com. And if you enjoy the show, you've gotten something out of it, I'd appreciate it if you give us a review on iTunes or Stitcher. It helps out a lot. And if you've done that already, thank you. Please consider sharing the show with a friend or family member who you think gets something out of it. As always, thank you for your continued support. Until next time, this is Brett McKay telling you to stay manly. Stay manly.